welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema, the podcast where you choose it, I watch it, we discuss it. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. Episode number 100 to be, to be in fact, so a fun little milestone that we've just crossed. So listener, thank you. Thank you for being part of this journey. If you are new to this podcast, please do me a favor and subscribe. Tell your friends. I'm always uh, in the market for new listeners and leave a review. So whether you listen on Apple or wherever, you can always uh, leave a review on my website, stampercinema.com. But the fact that you're here, thank you. And we've got one hell of an episode in store for you. Returning back to the show after a couple of years, we've got our original guest, Mr. Cooper Cherry. Fun little fact. Um, I actually used to appear on Cooper's podcast back, back in 2018 and 2019. He hosts the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Although I think back then it had a different name, but whatever. If you search on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour, you might even be able to find some of our older episodes. So check those out. But today we've got Cooper to dive into one of the the great cult classics. Not necessarily a great classic. You know, maybe it is a great classic. You know what? That is for you to decide. Uh, you, dear listener, get to choose whether or not a movie is a classic or a cult classic. That, that's that's how we're going to roll it. But we are going to be covering the 1984 David Lynch film, Dune. And let's just get right into it. So again, let's have a, a nice warm greeting from Mr. Cooper Cherry. Cooper, again, hello. Uh, it's been it's only been a few years since uh, we've had you, but welcome back. How are you, man? I'm doing very well. I'm, you know, thrilled to be back and thrilled to see your face. It's been so long since we've, you know, even like electronically seen each other's faces. Right. So we text um, back and forth, but I mean, yeah, now text. actually see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is like, how long has it been? Uh, what was it? We're in 2023 now. Um, mm-hmm. So what would have been the last? Gosh, it was what? When did you end up moving? Was it 2018? Well, so I moved to Atlanta uh january of 2019 19, okay and then i came to austin i think i right, saw right. you yeah yeah because so we met at bangers or whatever on, somewhere on rainy street, on rainy yeah, street sure. yeah my old neighborhood i think trotty as well yep 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 mm-hmm. but um since i've seen you you've changed a little bit the the hair's gotten a little longer both uh Above the uh, the nose and below the nose, I see. Yeah, I'm I'm fulfilling my destiny as a goth space wizard, <laughs> inspired strangely enough by David Lynch's Dune film. This mm. movie has such an impact on me in so many ways, but I think the aesthetics of it, in particular, which we can we'll get into as we progress through the episode. Yeah, for so sure. I, I mean, I, I know the fashion. Yeah, <laughs> I know the fashion before. Uh, this movie had come out. I mean, you were, I don't even know, I can't remember the name of that designer that you really like, but you can see how his influence, uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of elements from uh, uh, how this movie inspired him a bit. But Right. I even wonder if he was sort of, because definitely, I think in particular, it's like the, um, the Spacing Guild in particular, the, mm-hmm. the yep. little, like, not the Navigator, obviously, but the little, whatever, other levels of navigate i don't know what they are specifically supposed to be mm-hmm. in the show but i know that there's like you know some of them actually have like their faces covered so i'm assuming these are like 
different stages of the progress towards becoming a navigator or something. Right. Where you like, totally become a little fish man. <laughs> the yeah the the fish man with the the the, uh, the questionable <laughs> looking mouth but right, yeah. no i know this movie is something that is important we kind of talked before we hit record that you got into this movie fairly recently but uh well, and now I, it's kind so of the uh what it is is the vil- the villain away of a movie really got me back into the world into the universe but I I saw originally I saw there's an Alan Smithy cut that mm-hmm. <laughs> Lynch has like disowned basically, so it aired on just I feel like it was either cable or even like network TV in the early '90s, and it was like a two parter. It was like a three and a half something crazy, you know, in terms of the the cut or what have you. They added in a bunch of additional material and even some weird like production type still material and so forth you can even catch this you might even want to throw this on your show notes the spice diver fan edit is available for free on youtube okay and what that is is basically that alan smithy cut for the most part but they've done some other kind of goofy things that i don't even like necessarily like they made the navigator's eyes blue glow blue which i i don't know it just didn't is kind of like a bad choice but you get to see basically the same cut with some minor differences here and there that aired and really like, so I saw this when I was like, I don't know, five, six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. And it just blew my freaking mind. I mean, it just blew me away. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of personal, <laughs> I feel like even like, I feel like Lady Jessica was like my first crush. Oh, like, like my first uh, like the first woman i like felt kind of like a i don't know a, a real sexual attraction towards mhm and uh so yeah this is <laughs> there's a lot of uh i mean it, it, in this movie. It, it, it's an interesting road if you want to go down that but uh, <laughs> we don't have to mean <laughs> cuz now my uh, it's funny now i think that Sean Phillips who was Gaius Helen Mohiam the reverend mother you know the truth sayer for the emperor i think she is gorgeous she's beautiful like even with her shaved head her like her face her facial structure is just like cheekbones are incredible <laughs> i think she looks beautiful i'll have to i'll have to take a look at her again um the the whole look and i mean i think that's certainly an element that we're probably going to explore because each whether you're looking at um uh, the the harkonnens or you're looking at the atreides or you're looking at these these witches very very specific looks to all of them so there's probably a conversation to be had but before we get too deep into that what's going on with your podcast because i mean i know that you've completely blown up and, and we, we've talked we briefly mentioned that we're going to cover obviously dune and but i want to take a moment to actually appreciate what you're fucking doing so uh what's going on what, what, what's new with the podcast I mean, we are, I now have a partner. His name is uh, Taylor, Taylor Atkins. Just, a, I think, a wonderkind, like amazing with the kind of, you know, really dense continental philosophy that we tackle on a weekly basis. And we have like, you know, the, probably the, you know, the top minds or, you know, the top, people at the top of the field effectively for continental philosophy and psychoanalysis on a weekly basis. And he can dialogue with them like it's nothing, you know. 
Mm. And so I've kind of like taken more of a little bit of a backseat role and particularly in a lot of those more like high level conversations because, you know, I read the material as much as I can, but uh, some of it is even beyond my ability to really, you know, be able to speak to someone, um, you know, at this kind of echelon of uh, philosophy or theory or whatever, however you want to you know, articulate it. But, you know, I still, obviously, I participate. I have a good time. I'm loving it. I'm thriving. The show's thriving. You know, we're, like, I, I'm i already, like, basically, everything else is gravy. And it's been that way for, like, probably a year. I've already set out and accomplished more than I ever thought I would when I started it. So, it kind of just is my, you know, it's my creative outlet. I'm sure you kind of feel the same way as sort of a frustrated filmmaker myself, you know, it kind of feels that itch a little bit and gives me something to focus on and work on and i have goals every week you know i read i edit etc so you know it's just like it's the gift that keeps on giving in that regard so yeah now from obviously you you read a ton and you've got a little background in, in film as well what about writing are you, are you are you are you doing any writing or anything for it or any like philosophy writing or anything like that i ha- actually have a book that basically i just have to i just have to write it and i've started (laughs) but it's been months it's been months honestly since i've looked at it Mm -hmm. but i was working i'm working on effectively like this analysis of twitter through a psychoanalytic lens and so kind of focusing on what is referred to as like the libidinal economy of twitter so like what is you know the desire narcissism sadism masochism all of these kind of things, but also the sort of economic side of that on on social media and Twitter and how they those are interrelated and and so forth. So that's kind of my the like overview of the book that I basically have zero books. I just they wanted me to write a sample chapter before they mm-hmm. like accepted my proposal fully, and I just haven't <laughs> at the time. <laughs> work on it. I've just found it difficult with, you know, the the other podcast, you know, because that's kind of my priority is, you know, reading and doing that, editing that, mm-hmm. you know, that takes up all of my free time. So sure. It's hard to find the spare time to write. But I also have an idea for a really the definitive book on Dune and philosophy and in the continental sphere in particular. Well, really, the continental and psychoanalytic perspective. I have some great ideas. I talk about Dune a lot on my podcast and our episodes. It's kind of like a fallback for understanding concepts. I don't know. I'm an English major, so that's I understand philosophy and concepts through narrative best. And so I try to incorporate that because I feel like you know people can kind of, if they can sort of at least get an image in their head of how something might work, you know, I think that can sort of help bridge these gaps of understanding now when you when you're discussing dune are you primarily talking about the talking about it in novel form or are you talking about it like the david lynch movie or like the the one that came out in 2021 it would be entirely based on the actual books themselves which i've been i've gone through twice (laughs) in the last year so what they're they're what like six yes there there are six original books that were published by Frank Herbert and then his son picks up and does a bunch of prequels and sequels and so forth. But I have no interest in reading those or really much in that material. 
just because it doesn't really hit the same weird notes and like the kind of epic scale. And Herbert himself was familiar with psychoanalysis, you know, the theories of Freud and early psychoanalysis. So this is something that informs his writing and style. And you can see these echoes within the, you know, the entire series pretty much. Mm -hmm. Even later on, like in the last couple of books in the 80s, um, he mentioned some other, you know, he kind of seemed to have kept up with the field of psychoanalysis to some degree. At least that's kind of my take on things. Okay. Now, for this discussion, I think we'll, we'll obviously keep it to the film. And, you know, at any time that you want to go off and we, we want to get into philosophy, I mean, that's going to be more your bread and butter. Uh, but I'm more than happy to have that conversation. But for the listeners who are tuning in, <laughs> tuning in, I always think I still think of it as like a radio station, but right. uh, or like old like television. But here we go. We're talking about Dune, 1984, uh, David Lynch film written by David Lynch based on the the novel by by Frank Herbert, starring everybody. Uh, I mean, <laughs> anybody who was remotely significant in the. The uh, the early uh, 80s would have been in this movie and maybe a lot of people that weren't significant, but you've got like Kyle McLaughlin, um, uh, Brad Dorff, you've got Linda Hunt in there for a minute, you've got uh, Richard Jordan, you've got uh, shit, you got Sting, uh, Jurgen Prochnow, Patrick Stewart, uh, who am I forgetting? You've got Chani. I'm oh, yeah, you've on. got uh, Lois Einhorn or Ray Finkel, <laughs> however you want to look at it. Um, Virginia Madsen, which... Her first I, film. I, yeah, her first film. And I, I revisited this movie, and I'm, I'm still kind of mystified um, as to... Although, like, upon doing digging, I figured out kind of why, but, like, she holds no significance, really, like, just within the context of this movie, but you get, like, this five-minute... Um, summary like bringing basically it's kind of like the Star Wars crawl uh, that yeah. you're getting from her and then you don't see her again until like the final scene in the movie and she doesn't yeah. say anything in that scene but so yeah Virginia Madsen like her first film in this movie music done by Toto and uh, of course Brian Eno does the theme uh, what else can I say budget of about 40 to 42 million box office much less than that which I think is definitely a conversation that we'll talk about. The fact the movie did not perform upon its release, and the movie checks in at just over two hours. Now, those are the basic stats that I've got before we discuss plot. Or any, are there any other like stats or anything that you feel I should uh, I should mention? Yeah, I think one of the most important and most shocking ones for me was the runtime of this compared to the. Denis Villeneuve film. So this film checks in at two hours and 17 minutes. The Villeneuve film checks in at two hours and 35 minutes, which I think this like that is like the elephant in the room in terms of why this movie is such a absolute catastrophe after yeah. the first act. I mean, and when you think that Villeneuve actually cut out a scene like a pretty big scene from the book that I think would have helped i round things out i a little bit better i i believe although you know i'm pretty happy with overall with what he did except you know i do have a few bones to pick here and there but right overall pretty satisfied so i think that to me is just insane that 
they did the whole movie in less time than the first half of the new um, adaptation. So I think that speaks volumes for what, where the, if you want to pinpoint the issues with the movie, it's like trying to fit in this runtime was absolutely foolish, but I don't think that studios or producers like at that time, I don't think the mindset was that today of like, let's cut and let's do a series. I think, Lord of the Rings success real and obviously Star Wars too. Well, Star Wars probably led to this movie, but I think Lord of the Rings perhaps really helped to kind of show that you can do these sort of epic films. And even if you have to be economical with your scenes, you can still do something that's pretty satisfying and true to the, at least the vibe of the original. Um, Which I think even the, really, I think the Lynch film in terms of whatever, despite its flaws, it really nails the vibe, the weirdness, the like alien side of Dune that I absolutely love. I mean, this is what made me fall in love with the whole universe was this crazy movie. So that's awesome. Um, I'm trying to think I wanted, you know, your point about budget. I'm curious. We might have to look this up. So that is that was that an eighty four dollars? You said it was what? Forty five. Yeah. Uh huh. I wonder what that would. What's that today? You know, we have, what might have is to, that today? I mean, that. Certainly, yeah. If you were to do like forty million dollars in, I guess they would have filmed this in eighty three ish. What forty million dollars then would equate to today? But you brought up the running time, and I'm, I'm, you know, while you're maybe taking a look at the like the the conversion factor on that, in the fact that this movie run comes in, it like checks in at like two hours and seventeen minutes, and uh, the Denis uh, Villeneuve, I, you know, Canadian, French Canadian. Uh, filmmaker uh, amazing stuff but that one coming in close you know just under like three hours but what's fascinating is what is how many what's the page count for dune like that first book it's like 500 pages right gosh you're looking grab have to grab so i believe approximately 500 maybe maybe a little bit under a little bit over but when this movie was originally optioned and i don't know if you know the backstory on this but Several people had a crack at this, right? Yeah. So it was originally optioned in like 1971. And it was optioned by a guy, but he died. And so subsequently, a couple other people uh, tried to take like cracks at it. And and then it blew up to like this 10 to like 14 hour like opus. And that that idea got scrapped. And then I really Scott and then really Scott got like uh, the the rights. Well, uh, Dino De Laurentiis had the rights to, and he wanted um, Ridley Scott to do it. And then Ridley Scott was all on board, and they had a whole cast assigned. But then Ridley Scott's older brother had passed away, and so that didn't happen. And then finally, he tapped um, uh, David Lynch to do it. And like David Lynch was like the big hot like commodity at that moment, even though like. Uh, Eraserhead and the Elephant Man weren't necessarily big, giant box office films. The artistic vision was something that they that they thought would be huge. Yeah. And David Lynch, everybody wanted him. They actually wanted him to direct Return of the Jedi. Yeah, which, I knew if that. You know yeah. anything about David Lynch today? I can't imagine what a David Lynch <laughs> Return of the Jedi film would even look like. Right? Uh, right. There's a whole conversation to be had just about that in itself, which is exactly. unreal. There are some cool. It is interesting about the the sort of history of how it's bounced from, you know, these different production attempts. Some of the 
original ideas that Jodorowsky had, I think, ended up getting integrated into the ultimately what we got to see from Lynch. And I think particularly you can see this through like the H.R. Geiger inspired um, kind of the techno. I mean, things like the um, the still suits, I think, in particular, perhaps, although Bob Ringwood did the design for still suits, they definitely have that techno organic appearance that, you know, they kind of resemble muscle striations, etc. But even in the architecture itself, you can see at the palace at Arakeen, there's a couple of shots of like the stairs and hallways, and it has that weird, like, um, I don't know, it just looks very alien. And I mean, like, from the film aliens, sort of right. that whole universe, it's got some of those notes in there. But it's also this weird Baroque, like there's wood carvings and shit. So I think some of those little, like, I, I want to say that Jodorowsky was the one that brought in Geiger. So mm. some of that did kind of like <laughs> seep into the actual end product for Lynch, like all those years later, which is, yeah, I think, kind of yeah. interesting. But that is interesting. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of give David Lynch's uh, cut a little shit because of the fact that it, it, it leaves a, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of the novel out of it, right? I mean, the movie, again, checks in two hours and 17 minutes. That wasn't always the case, right? Like, post-production, without the special effects, the movie was about four hours long. And the, they're like, no, 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 this is never going to work. So the screenplay, everything, they, they got it to like 135 pages, still around three hours. And they're like, this just isn't going to work. So David Lynch and uh, De Laurentiis is uh, like daughter, I think it is. They went through and just hacked the shit out of it. They cut, and then they filmed some additional scenes. And that's where, we, where we're at now. So when you watch this movie, and we, we talked about this off air, but the opening, like the, the first act of the movie, I think, other than the fact that it's a, I mean, well, it's very much David Lynch in that first act, but, uh, you know, and, and the special effects are a little bit different. And the look is obviously very 80s. But structurally, the first act, I think I think it holds up pretty well. Yeah, it's, overall pretty solid. Yeah, yeah, pretty solid. The second act is where it just it 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 just is chaos, and I think that's kind of why I actually like this movie because you're you're left kind of like filling in a lot of elements. Like, wait, 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 what? Um, or it's or you could look at it as it's pure genius. Like everybody wants to see like the battle stuff, and David Lynch is like, "Fuck you." No, I'm just going to I'm just going to like basically cut out all the battle stuff and just right. say, and there was a war, but I'm not interested in the war. You're just going to get some more some more like heady drama. Uh, and then we're going to uh, uh, introduce this child prodigy played by a child prodigy. I don't know if you know anything about Alicia Witt, uh, but maybe we'll get into that. But yeah, so that in itself is just a little like backstory for the movie dune that we that, that we're looking in obviously we'll get into a lot more but i just wanted to kind of set the stage if you will before we actually have the real uh meat and potatoes of this conversation yeah i think we could actually start with the beginning which is a very delicate time <laughs> <laughs> har, har. um so i think what the attempt well i think the princess irulan or virginia madsen for those of you who don't know Irulan by name, 
she's the one that does the introduction at the film, right? So what's actually kind of cool is I think they did this. They This was an after. This was not originally part of the film. They went back afterwards and added in this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what I believe my interpretation of this is that they're trying to reproduce the little like in Dune and I'm holding this up so Andrew can see every mm. chapter has a little sort of quote um, and it will say something like from the manual of Moadi by the princess Irulan. So Irulan was like a historian and she recorded all of these and wrote all these history books about Moadib and his reign and so forth. So every chapter starts out with these kind of historical quotes from history because we're like supposedly looking back from the future at the events of Dune in this way, which I think is, I mean, some of those in the books are just my, that's kind of one of my favorite parts are these little, because they'll, sometimes there'll be these very profound uh, philosophical treaties or like ideas that he'll get into. Right. Though it's, that's a lot more pronounced later on in the books. So I won't waste too much time getting in there, but something kind of cool and interesting. And I think neatly done a neat way to kind of keep that element of the book with, within the movie to some degree. Although I, you know, I don't know exactly how that, you know, how that works for people. I don't know what people that, you know, are just encountering the film, how that strikes them. But, you know, when I was five, six, seven years old, didn't matter. <laughs> right. Now, regarding her, does she, and this is, just, I guess, something that I'm kind of curious about when it relates to the book versus the film. Is her character, does she appear throughout the novel or, like, what is, what is her function more than she, just a form of, like, exposition that we get in the movie? She's mostly in the, I don't think she even has a line that I recall in the books, but she is credited with basically those little like historical passages that are sort of the preface to every chapter. Gotcha. But yeah, it's been a while since I've read the first book. So my memory is very rough on the like specific plot elements. I'll try, I'll do my best to like try to fill those in. But yeah, my memory is a little bit hazy because I've been focusing mostly on the latter books. So like Mm -hmm. children of Dune and God Emperor, because those are the most, meaty philosophically speaking so in the in my intro before we got on I, I basically gave a plot summary but to you what what is this movie really about other Ooh, than I mean, the fact that we're we're talking about kind of like just a uh, uh family wars uh trying to be in charge of, of of this spice like what i mean more than more than like the the general plot summary what what is this about to you not necessarily thematic, but like at its core, what do you think is what, what do you think is going on? It's this is hard because the movie itself does something that the book doesn't do. And this makes it difficult to speak to the movie without going to the book, because the whole point of the book was to show that, OK, to draw um, this question about, OK, what about a hero, about a messiah, about someone you know, to make you skeptical that this type of, of this type of figure. And so it wasn't supposed to be Paul is literally this like Messiah, actual God who can make it rain. He had abilities. He had abilities that, you know, no one else had, um, but he was not a God Mm -hmm. per se. And that, in that regard, he was like a demigod, you know, he had abilities, but he wasn't going to be able to make it rain on Arrakis. You know, that's like, right. 
that would take an actual like <laughs> deity to do. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest issues. You know, fans of Dune don't like the ending where he makes it rain, which is uh, kind of funny to think that he makes it rain at the just because of the metaphor of making it rain. Is oh, I thought you were going to go with the the uh, you saw the uh, the rains uh, down in Africa. Uh, I thought you were going to go with like Toto. Toto, the, uh, the, oh, well, <laughs> the band that did the music for the for the listeners that aren't keeping score. Which also, the soundtrack kicks ass, man. I Dude, love it. Like it, it it's it, and there's gonna be like a like a there's gonna be a trivia question or a pop quiz question at the end of this conversation that I've got. But no, like um, the. The Brian Eno like prophecy uh, score is oh, yeah. really good. That's epic. obviously like so. Epic. I mean, it, it, it's it's fantastic. But the music that Toto put forth is really good. And I, I just remember because I hadn't revisited this movie in a long time. I'm like kind of like embarrassed to say how long it's been since I've seen Dune because I know Dune. You know, I, I it's it's the movie with the worms. It's the movie with with Sting wearing like I don't know like a black plastic like bikini bottom. Uh, you know, like there, it, it's this movie where he gets in a fight with uh, the dude from Twin Peaks, right? Like, you know, the, there are things that I know about this movie. Um, and then there's a guy with the the weird like pus balls on his face, right? So these are the things that like that I've always known about this movie. But what I had forgotten is how fucking badass um, the the uh, the the rock uh, kind of like a score that that Toto did with this and. It wasn't completely out of the question, especially in the late 70s, early 80s, right? Because you you look at a movie like this or you look at a movie like Flash Gordon or you look at Blade Runner. You know, you, you've got these uh, yeah. these, these scores. The Transformers that, movie. Transformers Even. movie, right? You've that got these heavy metal influence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the movie Heavy Metal. Um, you know, so you do have these these iconic artists that are that are doing these uh, scores for films but it was something that i had completely like overlooked or forgotten about i don't really necessarily have a point beyond that it was just something that we, we went there and it just it, it was in my mind yeah i remember whenever there's a great part whenever paul first he rides his first worm and he's up at the top with and it, and then like stillgar joins him and they do like a great just like electronic guitar riff right then it right. sounds yeah 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 it yeah. sounds real cool like the whatever effects they had on that were just perfect it had like this very like industrial sound to it which mm-hmm. was just amazing but yeah i guess i, I just to, i want i don't want to like halt the conversation about what the book movie is really supposed to be about is like paul has a he feels trapped in this terrible purpose he doesn't really say it here he's it's something that you know in the newer movie is a lot more apparent is like this is not like oh this is not luke skywalker you know this is (laughs) this is more like the story of darth vader ultimately Mm. to it is like the the jihad goes wrong like things go very bad (laughs) Mm-hmm. And we find this, you know, this happens in the second book. Uh, you'll get a real <laughs> douse of cold water if you're going into the second book thinking, oh, this is like our typical hero's journey, Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, type of a story. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is about a man, a great man's fall, a great man's tragic fall. So. Yeah, because I, I haven't I haven't read any of them. I, I know nothing. I, I trust your uh, your input far more on this. But 
I guess what I'm really fascinated about is, I mean, obviously, we're going to come back and talk novels because you've got a lot of rich history with it. But I, I do look at this movie, and this is a movie that has a massive, very, very large uh, cult following. But like many movies in its time, was not appreciated, um, whether by the audience or critically. The Rotten Tomatoes score gives it a 43%. And based on some of the, like, the critical like, um, uh, reviews I've read, that 43% is pretty nice. Because uh, uh, like, I think it was like Siskel and Ebert rated like the worst movie of, of that year. And I'm not, I don't know if I want to read the, um, the Roger Ebert review, but it is. I'll, I'll put in the show notes. It is nice. worth a read. For somebody, if you just want to read somebody just shit all over somebody else's art, <coughs> pardon me, it is, it, it's something to make you laugh because he just goes on about just the mess that he felt this movie is. And in many ways, there, there, there are many things I agree with, uh, with yeah. what he's saying in there because the movie is far from perfect. But the question I have for you, Cooper, is the fact that we both recognize where the, the holes in this movie are. And we're not even talking about from a post-production like special effects or, uh, or filters within the movie, but just, you know, structurally like, but yet all that aside, why is it that I fucking love this movie? Like, like all, I mean, and maybe it's another reason why, you know, I, I do find myself attracted to movies and I enjoy a really good film, but I also do find myself uh, attracted to movies that that they're not perfect and they have giant gaping holes in them. But you can see, oh, there's something going on here. There's more. This is more than just a bad sci-fi 80s movie. They're like the, the right. filmmaker obviously is tapping into something. There is something very, very rich. The 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 acting, although not perfect, is perfect for what it's trying to uh, trying to accomplish. So maybe I'm answering my own question, but <laughs> knowing that and recognizing this movie is far from perfect, why is it that that I still love it? Why is it that you love it? Why is this a movie that has continued to build its its audience despite the the um, like the, you know, throwing the Internet shit posting stuff aside, you know, and, and memes and everything? Why is this a movie that that we want to discuss? I mean, I think you just have – part of it is the legacy of Dune. I mean, it itself – I mean, it's one of the – always amongst the top, you know, upper echelon of sci-fi of all time in the genre. So that's one thing. Um, but I think for me personally, it's kind of funny that, ironically, the the kind of Luke Skywalker presentation <laughs> that that ended up coming through in the movie is what grabbed me as a kid. It was like, oh, okay – well, this this is like another kind of like mess, messianic figure, like mm. the heroic figure that like, you know, he get he brings rain. He he frees the oppressed people. Right. Like all that is very good and, you know, makes a lot of sense to a five or six year old. <laughs> so I think that legacy like that is just the time that I saw it, I think. Yeah. Left it left such an indelible mark in my psyche. Obviously, because I'm here, you know, all these years later, I'm like 40 years old now. <laughs> this is like 35 years ago that I first saw this film. And um, yeah, just something about it, the 
it's so weird. It's so weird and different, and there's nothing like it. I don't know if you can really point to anything like this film with this kind of budget. You know, it's insane. <laughs> We're talking like a movie that they they filmed in Mexico. There was like over twenty thousand like extras that they used, and they they obviously uh, did a lot of work to make this movie happen. And forty million. Did you did you get a t- chance to see what that conversion rate looks like? It's something like uh oh shoot, I was looking. Okay, so a hundred dollars in nineteen eighty three was, and so it's like three times that. So it'd be like a hundred and twenty million, one hundred fifty million. Somewhere in there, that range, okay. roughly. So a very, very expensive film. Yeah. So, okay. Like um, a smaller, Mar- probably not like a big, big Marvel movie, but one of the, like, you know. Like an Ant-Man. Know, like an Iron something. Man or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, this movie, obviously, you know, we're set in a world that is, what is it, like the year 10,191 or something like that. I can be very pedantic here and say that <laughs> that's so since what? the but so the the date that she gives is since the Butlerian Jihad, and that's whenever they had a war against thinking machines, where there was like a whole civil war that broke out in the Imperium because thinking machines were going to take over, and so this these like religious fanatics effectively <laughs> led this battle to defeat the thinking machines and those who supported that sort of faction let's say and so i don't we don't even know it might be something like thirty thousand years from our time but it is set in our universe and that's where i I was kind of curious about because i that's one of the things i had read it is set within the ideas of our universe and they do mention earth Mm -hmm. in the later books um a painting from van gogh shows up for example (laughs) So, but Randomly. certainly well over 8,000 years from now. Oh, yeah. I mean, probably something like 30,000 years from now. It's mm-hmm. kind of iffy because the, but like I said, the Butlerian Jihad was something like 10,000 years ago. And they think maybe 10,000 years before that would be our time. But I don't, it's a little bit confused. I don't think there's a like consensus. You'd have to mm-hmm. look in like, there's, because you also have like the Dune Encyclopedia, which is not canon. I don't want to get into that necessarily. So. <laughs> it's disputed, let's say. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, um, so let's, yeah, we'll we'll try to just kind of reel this in and talk about a little <laughs> bit more about this movie. Maybe like specific, like key, like themes and elements, like certainly like the, uh, I mean, I want to talk about the Baron. I mean, we talk about the Harkonnens or Harkonnens uh, specifically because those fuckers are interesting, uh, to put it mildly. Especially uh, the Baron, which I have to ask, um, was that just a David Lynch uh, choice or like? No, the what Baron is was a murderous. I don't know if he was exactly a pedophile per se, but he did uh, was attracted to young boys and mm-hmm. would do things to them. Heart plugs are a Lynch invention, but that essential sort of thing is basically is canon. From the and the the like the little like pus module like like module like the little pus balls and everything. Well, the Baron was a supposed to be a kind of gross, decadent, gouty sort of guy, and I think Herbert really just 
went a little bit too far with <laughs> painting him as this villainous character because he really like is not this mustache twirling villain. Like he's a very savvy. I mean, more like the way that he's portrayed in the newer mm-hmm. film by uh, gosh, I'm blanking on the guy's Skarsgård. name, Skarsgård, which yep. is actually a funny coincidence because he's in Hunt for Red October with Richard Jordan. That's right. But he that is. Gets yeah. Off into, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now he's fathered an, a next generation of uh, incredible actors. So, um, yeah, the that you know, it, it, it's been, it's interesting because this movie, I when I first saw it, I, I just remember thinking this movie was kind of like hard to track. But upon giving it another viewing, I don't think it's particularly hard to track. In fact, I think David Lynch makes a really easy point of like, all right, the Harkonnens are all going to be redhead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, the the. The, the good people that we're really rooting for, they're all going to have blue eyes, which just just seems, <laughs> I don't know, uh, kind of racist in a different way. Uh, or right. Aryan, you know. Um, and the, the other family that we're really going to pay attention to, actually, it's not even the other family, because there is a whole lot of bad eyebrows going on in this, in this film. So... Yeah, the Mentats. I don't know why he chose something the- in, in the book where everybody just had giant giant like burt eyebrow eyebrows from sesame street the one thing about the books that i think is great is actually kind of cool is that herbert actually is very lean with his prose like he's a journalist by trade Mm. so he has a very hemingway style that he like fills in the minimal amount of information and lets you like run wild with your imagination which i think is fucking awesome i think maybe that's why I kind of enjoy the books because there's so much space for you to like fill in like what things look like or et cetera, et cetera, and work on that. Um, so, gosh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, you're fine. I mean, this is so at the end, I mean, the whole so I don't thing think I'll basically to say the eyebrows, I don't think were yeah. canon in the books. Yeah, but Baron was supposed to be a gouty kind of and. I want to say that, you know, it's later revealed that you know in subsequent books that mohim is jessica's mother through the baron actually i guess they do reveal that Mm -hmm. the baron is her father but they don't say who the mother is and supposedly mohim did some kind of like benny jesuit stuff that made gave him that illness that caused the boils somehow because he raped her or something like that so as her payback she like poisoned him or something so that's the like afterwards yeah. backstory to, to the whole disfigurement of the Baron. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the uh, shit, the what is it? The Baron Desert. Okay, Benny for Jesuit. the listeners, assume they haven't ever seen this before. Let's break down, not necessarily the houses, but some of these like key terminologies kind of the and factions. what they really mean. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. You might be. It might be better if you direct me on some of these, so I don't. Like ones that you think might be like Benny Gesserit, I can do that pretty quickly. Yep. That would be so, so they're kind of based on the Jesuits. So a kind of order of like, you know, Christian nuns, etc., that had, you know, were one of these like conspiracy groups that people always thought were like trying to take over the world was like the Jesuits at, at one point. And so 
that's kind of based on the Jesuits, but also Herbert was raised Catholic. He went to a Catholic school, and so he has this relation to the nuns. And so I think that's the sort of where they come from. But they're in order of, gosh, their whole thing is to try to produce the Quitsats Hatterak, who is a being that can access what they have referred to as ancestral memory. So whenever Paul consumes the water of life and he transmutes that into not poison, he becomes the Quitsas Haderach, effectively. And he can see, he has access to all of the memories of his male and female ancestors, presumably all the way back to the very first human being. And he is also a mentat. So he has the like computational like training that Thufur Hawat and Peter DeVries have. And he's got the Bene Gesserit training, which I should elaborate. They have Prana Bindu fighting and not the weirding modules. The weirding way is not the weirding modules in the book. I just think it was maybe a choice Lynch made because perhaps people fighting <laughs> hand to hand in the desert mm-hmm. would be difficult to, you know, production wise. I'm not sure what that choice was. I'm not even that mad about the weirding modules, although I know a lot of people bitch and moan about, and it's like, eh, I, it's not a big enough departure for mm-hmm. me to like get upset about. But so yeah, yeah. the Jesuit are like lethal fighters. Yeah. They, they'll fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. So he basically becomes like the three-eyed raven from uh, like uh, Lord of kind the Rings. Kind of, yeah. If, yeah. But game with, like, Bruce Lee capability. Yeah, with, like, Bruce Lee capabilities and, like, mastermind, I don't know, <laughs> with the Mentat also training. So he's got, like, everything. He's, like, he's trained in, like, knife fighting, um, the weirding way, you know, the Mentat training, the Benny Gesserit training. So he's, like, a... And he's also, he's like, got, a cowboy. He's, he like can, a five, he's, like, a five-tool baseball player at this five point. five-tool baseball player, exactly, exactly. Okay. So, um, essentially, the, the whole concept is, at the outset, this is something that I didn't mention, like, within the plot. I'm kind of curious to know if this is still, like, within the plot of, of the novels. Basically, we find is they want him dead because uh, they, he, basically, um, his parents violated, like, this decree that they weren't to have a male heir. And they wanted essentially to off him because potentially he could have some type of significance or or his birthing could just be essentially the result of an end of a piece, if you will, and just could bring on an era of of fighting. That's that's a little bit of that's right. So really, the ultimately, the plot was the the emperor saw Duke Leto as a threat. Mm, Duke Leto mm, mm. was was popular in the Lonsrod, which is basically their little feudal, you know, house of lords or what have you. Um, so he was fairly popular. They were kind of well liked. Um, you know, they did they had a very good PR wing for the Atreides house. So they also started training. They discovered some type of training that made their forces a threat to the emperor's like. Sardaukar troops for, or like the most fearsome fighting force within the empire. 
they grew up on a, they live on a prison planet called Seleucus Secundus. That is like, it's kind of like the uh, 300, a Gogi style. Like mm. they put you in the most, the most horrendous environment possible. And the people that survive that are hard ass. And they, you know, they make the best soldiers because they've like, they're survivors. Like they're single-minded killers and like, you know, the most advanced evolutionary instincts in terms of combat and so forth. And Herbert is very big on this, like, he's over the top Darwinian with this thing. So like, which is kind of interesting in one way, because he kind of has this materialist understanding of culture and society. So he realizes that, okay, the physical, like geographical, uh, you know, environment that humans grow up in is going to impact how they are, social structures form, et cetera, except their bond, kinship bonds. You know, I mean, there's a whole set of circumstances, you know, we adapt to our environments by and large, and then we interact with them and we impact them. And it's kind of this feedback loop between ourselves as humans and nature and so forth. And so he's very attuned to that thing. And that's why like the movie opens up with the gum Jabbar test with the hand in the box, you know, Mohim is like, Put your right hand in the box. <laughs> and he's like, what's in it? Pain. And then she's like, oh, don't move. At yep, your neck, I hold a gum, a gum jabbar. So the test with the box is to determine, are you someone who can delay gratification? Are you someone who can overcome your instincts with reason? Because we don't think that you're the Quizaz Hatterach, but you might be. So we're going to test you and we're going to test you in the most extreme way we can possibly test you because that test is going to reveal who you really are. If you're not if you're not a human who can rationally overcome his instincts to remove his hand out of the box, then we can't trust you with this power and you're going to die. Literally. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the old like witch test because it's like uh if you if you float, you know, you're <laughs> right, not a witch. Yeah, exactly. Because you're you're fucked either way, essentially, right? Unless you are capable of doing it, which nobody really can, right? I mean, she said that he went further than anybody's ever done that before, right? Yeah, no woman child ever withstood that much. Is is the line in the in the movie? Mm -hmm. And so, but that principle is Herbert's like putting people in extreme situations to determine who they are. Like that is what he's all about. That's what you, like. That's why the Fremen are such a threat. All what becomes such a threat is because they live on Arrakis. Mm -hmm. And what did God say? God said God created Arrakis to train the faithful. So it's a parallel to the Sardaukar. The Sardaukar are the most leading fighting force because they grew up on a prison planet. Well, these the Fremen live on Dune. It's worse. They're even more hard ass mm -hmm. warriors that will like they know no fear. They're you know. They're like the Vietnamese, you know, the Viet Cong on like steroids, basically. Right. Right. Now, when you said, hey, I want to talk about Dune, this would be a fun movie to uh, go on like a <laughs> rabbit hole. What what are some things that you wanted to get out of it? What are some things that you wanted to discuss? Other than what we're already talking about now, just having a conversation about the movie. What what is it that sticks with you? What is it that you come back to like? This is something that is important. I want to talk about it. I guess the the aesthetics, the art direction of the film, to me, I mean, to me, that's its strongest, strongest presentation. Um, I mean, you can even see in the opening scene with 
whenever the um the throne room is being cleared out and you see Irulan. She's got a white dress on, it a white gown on. Immaculate gown. We'll have to find pictures for the show notes or something. Mm, Look, mm-hmm. She looks incredible. Like this is like a couture runway, like expensive gown. God knows how much it costs to make that gown. And then she's got mm-hmm. like this black veil over the top with like gold flecks in it. I mean, just looks incredible. Incredible. Mm-hmm. If you look up Irulan's dress dresses from this movie, you'll be blown away by how incredible they are. Um, like I already mentioned the still suits. I mean, those still suits, I think they look so, I want a still suit so bad. They look so cool. They're so black and gothy and sleek. I mean, they look amazing. They look, and the sort of techno organic elements of them that resemble muscle and so forth, I think is just, I don't know, the aesthetic is like, it's just right. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think who else. The, um, even Mohim, like the Benny Jesuit outfits are incredible. When we meet Mohim for the first time, you know, she's got that sort of, what is it, a nun's, kind of like they have their own little nun's habit style yep. head wear, but their heads are kind of shaved. Um, but she's got like that, almost looks like chain mail neckline. And it's on the hands and, and so forth too. I mean, just amazing detail. Looks incredible looks expensive the way that the fabrics move when she walks they kind of like just flow and billow in the air very cool mm-hmm. um I'm trying to think of another element aesthetic wise that really stands out oh the <laughs> there's some random like priests and this and they're like show up in the end of the movie like the final scene that have like these hooded robes on they look incredible it's the detailing and the kind of weird glyphs that they created for the look just looks insane. Um, they kind of match at the end. They bring out this cloak for Paul and it's got runes on the on the inside. I mean, I asked somebody how much it would cost to get that robe redone. And they were like, oh, you're talking about like $50,000 to create that exact <laughs> same piece. And I was like, oh, ee, that's a little. <laughs> I guess I'll have to go with the. Uh, yeah, I, can't, it, the I, can't, I can't do that for Halloween cosplay mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> cosplay version yeah yeah so like when i think about this movie now like and i'm I'm ruined because i've just went down a rabbit hole and it has very very little to do with the movie other than <laughs> the actress in the film itself but uh alicia witt who uh was it alia what's her uh um, alia yeah yeah so she plays alia and this is an actress that i had like a teen crush on she was like like on this tv show called like Sybil, and she was in a, a ton of other films and she's still a working actress. She's in like her mid to late forties. Now she's a couple of years older than me. But what I found out about this girl is that she was considered a prodigy. She was talking at two, could read at four, graduated high school at like 13 or 14 years old. And, uh, is just one of those, uh, like genius, uh, genius kids. And which is, not a stretch considering uh, who, right, yeah. who she's playing in this film, which is um, another one of these. Uh, uh, what was it? What was it? The, the terminology that they gave her? They called her. Well, the Benny Jesuit referred to her as an abomination because what happens is the Fremen have actually. I get this is funny how long I have to go back. So it's like the Fremen <laughs> have been seated by the Benny Jesuit have like 
this thing called the Missionaro Protectiva, which is sort of like this religious myth that they seed out into other worlds just in case they get stranded on another planet. They can kind of manipulate people through this religious myth. And so the Fremen are very much in that sort of colonial myth and their religion. So they have this prophecy that one day an outside, a man will come who will be there, basically take them out of bondage. In fact, like it's this very messianic um, prophecy that was planted. The seeds are planted by the Bene Gesserit. So Paul and Jessica, whenever they meet up with the Fremen, they're, they're laying out stuff to manipulate the Fremen from day one. They know the prophecy. They know that the Fremen know the prophecy. And so they're on that thing. Okay. Fast forward, they, they allow Jessica to accompany and be part of the Fremen siege because she is a Bene Gesserit. And they have people called Sayadinas, which are basically their kind of religious reverend mother. Um, sort of a quasi Benny Jesuit. Like some of that stuff kind of persists. Obviously, it's a little bit different just because of time and geography, et cetera. But they have a process where they transfer their memories to another, the next Reverend Mother. And how that's achieved is through this water of life, which is a poison. And so Jessica gets involved. She's she drinks the water of life. She doesn't realize that this water of life ceremony is basically the same as the Bene Gesserit truthsayer drug that take you know you have to basically do the same thing. You have to transmute this poison with your body. Like Bene Gesserit understand they can control their body temperature, chemistry, etc. So mm-hmm. they literally with their minds make their body do a change the pH balance, chemical, et cetera. Like they know how to control their bodies to that level. And so they take this poison and they make it not poison so that it doesn't actually kill them. And being able to do that allows them to become a full Bene Gesserit sister. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the Fremen have the same thing, except they call it the water of life. Jessica had no clue about the water of life being the same. She was pregnant. So she takes it. So this, create some kind of fucked up situation where the baby in her womb gets all of the memories and experiences of a reverend mother, but while they are still in the womb. So they're like, I don't even know how, <laughs> I don't even know what an analogy to her would be, but yeah, she would be like effectively a reverend mother straight up out of the womb. Like mm-hmm. she's already aware she was born uh, history. prematurely. She came out. She's like, dude, I'm ready. Like, I'm I'm not even fully like developed, but let's let's get this fucking party started. She has the memories of all of her female ancestors, too. So mm-hmm. she already has the experiences of a lifetime of of women and so forth. So she's not she's in a child's body, but she is by no means anything resembling a normal child. And the problem is that. I mean, this is this is a little bit speculative. So the my speculation is that the child doesn't have their own developed enough psyche to resist these memories because the memories want to sort of come to the forefront and sort of you can sort of be possessed by one of these memories. And so that is why the Bene Gesserit consider children like this an abomination and they have to be killed because they could be taken over by one of those 
ancient memories or what have you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This becomes an important plot point in, in subsequent books that I won't spoil, but that's kind of the best way I can describe it. Sure. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, I don't know if I really, I mean, we, we, maybe we can, um, glossly like discuss it. I don't want to take a super deep dive into themes, but I know that's something that obviously is very important to a film like this. So what are some themes when you, when you watch this movie that, that, that you think of, and obviously you're, you're very well-versed with the texts. So not trying to get into the weeds on those, but just some of the some of the themes that you think of from this movie that for somebody going into this blind, what are what are some things we look into? Obviously, you know, you, you said that Frank Herbert was raised Catholic. There's in this film adaptation anyway, there you already mentioned like kind of like a messiah element. I mean, very, very strong. This movie came out in 84, so it came out in the era of Star Wars. So unfortunately, whether for good or for bad they did make this guy kind of a Luke Skywalker type kind of character. They gave him a form of technology that was not quite a lightsaber, but obviously something that is kind of similar. So, you know, it was a very, very popular sci-fi flick at that time. So maybe trying to brand itself similar, but go a little bit more heady, a little bit more intellectual, you know, something that the movie was interested in. But what are some... What are some themes that maybe uh, somebody that's not well versed? What are they? What are some things that might appeal to them, or they they should be looking out for? Do you think? I mean, you kind of have a basically the the Lynch adaptation in particular. It's sort of like a Hamlet. You know what I mean? It's kind of the yeah the revenge, yeah. The, even, because literally, kind of the uncle, the uncle Baron. Yeah. Although it's not exactly the same thing he doesn't steal the queen per se but like right the kind mm-hmm. of you know rough skeleton of that sort of conflict is is still there i think um because yeah paul is kind of this dark kind of brooding kind of a kid he's he's weird like he doesn't have a lot of friends um because he's <laughs> you know because he's so kind of like i don't know precocious let's say mm-hmm but yeah, I don't know. The themes in the film are a little bit, it's harder to articulate because it's just kind of like, it is this very much kind of straightforward story ultimately about revenge, avenging your father. You're but right. it's like kind of in this universe of Dune. So there's all this other, like basically f- everything else is kind of flavor in that stew. But the stew is kind of basic, you know? Yeah, Whereas no, the book is doing a totally like this whole, like I said, it's going in at, the whole idea of Paul being this messianic figure and we're supposed to be skeptical of that whole program from the get go. It's really interesting because I hadn't even really thought about the fact that this is kind of thrown out and pretty much in your face, right? It's very un David Lynch in that sense where you watch a movie like, I don't know, like Mulholland Drive, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, becomes a completely different movie in the second act. And then by the final act, you're like, wait, what, what am I watching? Um, or like Lost like this, Highway. Liter- Lost, Lost Highway does that even better. <laughs> yeah, Lost Highway just is fucking nuts. But even movies that are a little bit easier to track are still still tough to follow. Like um, Wild at Heart, you know, it's still yep. another movie that goes a little bit a little bit different. But like, what is it? Like the first line, if not the first line of this is what, 
a beginning is a very delicate time, right? Like, like, all right. So by the way, there's a lot of shit that you're going to need to keep up with. So we're going to just <laughs> simplify it. Like, so the beginning, like, listen, there's a lot of shit. So I'm just going to spell this out to you. But you've got these recurring lines, like what, like the spice is life, right? I mean, this, or the spice the extends, spice extends life. life. Yeah. Um, the slow blade penetrates uh, the shield. Oh, gosh. Yes. That's one of the best. I love that line, the slow line, even though it's like very mechanical, like it doesn't have a huge significance, something about it. It does have a nice, like poetic aspect mm -hmm. to it. So I think the, the shield technology, like the practical reason is the shield technology was designed to stop uh, projectile bullets. So any or projectile weapons. So anything traveling at a very fast speed, it would, but it was simultaneously. That's why the knife fighting and the slow blade penetrates something moving slower. It can't, I don't know, the Holtzman field can't stop it for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Some made up hand wavy science reason. <laughs> what are some of your favorite scenes in the film? I mean, the opening scene with the navigator. I mean, that's just so incredible. You know what I mean? Whenever he rolls in with that giant like black box thing. And the sound design and the sound editing is like on point and it gives it just this like, <laughs> like you get this, you get this, the sense of the scale of the thing and the sounds, but then also, and this could go back to the aesthetics as well. The, uh, the little guild guys our little spacing guildsmen, their look. I, I know that was, that's your shit right there, dude. That is yes. so like, I remember, like, I think my note is, hold on, I have to pull this up because I put this on there. Like that, like whole entourage. Where is it? I've got this. Perfect. Oh, uh, here we go. Uh, entourage. Cooper must love the fashion of, of the black leather <laughs> folk that visited House Catan. It's like the guild. Like and I was just trying to figure out what they're called. I'm like that is his shit. Uh, so like making notes, just watching like them come. Like I just knew like Cooper is gonna eat this shit up. There's like a shot. It's and you can get a gif or gif of this now. It's like. I might even have to send you this after we finish recording. It's like there's their guild ship lands and they're like the little portal opens up and it's like all this kind of they're they're like walking out and it's like all this kind of fog is in there and they're like little black uniforms. They're like high cowl like those. These were actually made out of body bags, like were they really used body bags that I don't think they ever told any of the actors were that's used awesome. body bags. But yeah, that's where those. Uh, guild crazy outfits came from, which I fucking, I mean, obviously, like I said, we love. Yeah, no, I mentioned at the outset that the designer that, uh, that you, I, I've always, I've Owens. asked you, pardon me? Rick Owens. Rick Owens, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've asked you a thousand times and I apologize, I'll ask you a thousand times more, but I'm going to put, uh, Rick Owens in the show notes for nothing else, just to see some of, uh, Rick's, uh, yeah. other work because it, it's very specific. I think that his most recent runway show, um, remind me to provide that to you because that'd be something good to link because I think it's very much in the realm of Dune too. Mm -hmm. Not just the Lynch, but I think even some of it could fit within the, the newer film. Yeah. Okay. So we've got that. We've talked about the box scene, which was one of my favorite scenes in the whole Oh yeah. Oh gosh. Even be before that, before that, one of the most amazing scenes and shots is jessica and mohim in that room and it's like this side profile shot of them mm. jessica looks amazing she's got that black dress on with the high like 
neck that like has the I don't know, got like this rigid kind of collar. Her hair's yep. up in this like gorgeous way, and then you know you have the baroque wooden set. Looks amazing. Mohim and her get up. Even when they show up, the Benny Gesserit show up. You know, Jessica has that huge like fur lined hood thing that almost looks like reminds me of uh what is it dark raider <laughs> a little bit from uh baseballs yeah dark, uh, i forget the you know rick moranis i forget the yeah, actual character uh, dark helmet dark helmet i had to think about it. I'm like what was his name what was his name but yeah i love that shot of them that's like a, a side profile shot where you see both of them in the frame like kind of i guess like a two shot Mm-hmm. one of my favorites the shots whenever they're paul is giving the speeches in the ch and you've got those it's like in that kind of weird huge stone room and there's like a whole multitude of people at the bottom and like the red crosses and he's up on that like i don't even know what you call it what do you <laughs> i guess that balcony sort of yeah yeah okay yeah i know what you're talking about yeah you get a shot of Paul from behind where he like raises his hand because everybody's kind of murmuring in the crowd and like raises his hand. And so it flips from this like front shot to behind Paul and his hands up. And it just looks awesome with mm-hmm. all of those people and like the depth of the room and so forth. Um, I'm trying to think what else sticks out. Let me look at my notes here. Anything else? I already mentioned whenever he gets on the worm. Oh, another one <laughs> to hit, to hit up our girl Alicia Witt. So after she kills the Baron and like runs out of the hole or whatever that got blasted through the wall, whenever she's like there with, she's like it's like a slow motion shot, and she's got like the gum jabar needle on one hand and the Chris knife on the other, and she's just like got her head back and she's just like totally vibing. It looks yeah, like incredible. she was totally vibing. Like I was trying to figure out, like, what the fuck is she doing in this scene? But she's just she's just caught in the moment. It's like, yeah, know, I got just... I got that. I got him. I yeah. got him. It was just so funny. So funny. My brother, my brother's coming, Baron. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 voices. He is here uh, now. Yeah, the, the voices were just so good. So good. And she was I I did enjoy like, her voiceover for sure. That was a good choice, I think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, a lot going on. Uh, not all wins, but I mean, it's still such a fun, fun ride. Again, 43%. Audiences enjoy it a lot more at 65%. I think that's certainly aided over the years. It's built its cult audiences. Uh, the internet certainly loves using this movie, if nothing else. By just far, for... yeah. Say that again? <laughs> by far. Yeah, by far. By far so, what, so what is by far? <laughs> it stands for bring in, fade, and Raban. And so this is a line that the Baron delivers in the Lynch movie and in comes Fade and Raban. And it's that simple. And it's just something that has caught on in the meme culture surrounding Dune as kind of like the joke that you that we run to the ground and the the joke is that we've run this joke into the ground kind of mm-hmm. is sort of the vibe to it. Um one of my favorites is this is a meme that you've you've seen. It's like uh, it's like a couple is they're presumably something like Coachella and the guy just looks kind of exhausted and his girlfriend's like got her hand out and somebody's like, so 
you just you just say bring in Fade and Raban, and then you put in a picture of Fade and Raban, and that's the <laughs> meme. <laughs> it, what what's great is what I love about like just uh, taking a joke to the death and then keep going is is how it's just it's no longer funny but then it becomes funny again and just like, like when it's like no you've done it to the death and it's like no then you just that's when you double down it's like it's yeah, already exactly. filled. just keep just keep on going um but then you look at the performances and obviously uh fade was performed by none other than than what is it gordon gordon sumner uh aka sting and there are a lot of over-the-top performances in, <laughs> in this film. I mean, a lot. Uh, I don't know if it was Raban or uh, Fayed, but I think their two performances might have been the most, like, instead of, like, turning up to 11, they just went to 12. Just a, li- just a little bit, a little bit over. But I think that's what makes it also so fun with, like, just even within, like, that, that meme, like, uh, universe that we're in. Because right. they're just so uh not even flamboyant but just yeah just completely they're not even caricatures uh but just even even when he's like well who uh i can't what was the line that sing says but he's like well who is it that you've got and he's just like completely just like deranged and smiling even in the closing credits where like they like in order of appearance you see everybody's faces when you see raban and fayed like even their looks there in the credits <laughs> are just are uh are are just perfect very very quintessential david lynch uh characters that are in this universe i'm still going to give you something that doesn't quite (laughs) doesn't quite work in the rest of any of this but i'm going to put it in because it amuses me and you're going to get a really fun you're going to get a really good uh uh uh, fight scene with sting and uh kyle mclaughlin and what was the other thing that Raban did? Like, what do you, was it just like a bug or something that he just squeezed? Yeah, it was like a beetle for his little high C juice box, mm-hmm. which is wild, right? <laughs> and just um, the satisfaction but, that he had while drinking, just something that he had just yeah. killed. It's funny too because they like make he's all sweaty, like in that scene too. They kind of like make him all kind of sweaty and kind of like gross looking. Sting was actually supposed to come out butt naked. I think the studio actually Sting was up for it. Lynch, you know, whenever he comes out in that little bikini thing. Well, you know, Sting is up for it. My man, like, is all about like, uh, what Contra. is it? Like the yeah, like exactly. Contra but and yeah. like uh, fucking for like you know sixteen hours <laughs> and shit. <laughs> Dude, I love Sting. Um, <laughs> and I mean, he was always in shape, but you you never knew like completely forgotten until you see that like the man literally no fat on him granted he was probably like about 130 pounds in this movie but one completely shredded yoga motherfucker right there just like just completely just ripped for sure extremely low body fat percentage (laughs) no Mm -hmm. doubt about it all right anything else in your notes because i I do have a pop quiz i we're uh, we're running we're running out of some time, but I just want to get into anything that that you might have in your notes or anything you want to discuss. Oh, you know what was kind of cool is that I didn't and I didn't even realize this until I was kind of digging around on IMDb is that there's a couple of fremen that are in this movie that are named characters that show up in subsequent books, and I was like, 
whoa, this is fucking awesome. And two of them in particular show up in Dune Messiah. And one of them is Othium, and the other one is Korba. And Korba, your Othium, you'll recognize because he was the guy with the like kind of like kind of looks like me a little bit. He had the bl- he, but he had dark black hair, yeah, and the black beard. Yeah, okay, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. He's like <laughs> the one U- Usul no longer needs the weirding module. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think even and and then Korba was the one that he told. Okay, remember the scene and they have that like obelisk. Paul Paul's like. This obelisk is of your heart of stone. Corba, yep. try and cut it. Yeah, yeah, And I was yeah. like, oh shit, Corba, whoa. Like, I don't want to spoil the second book or the possible sequel to the next Dune movie. But these guys show up, um, which was really a neat little Easter egg for me involving Dune Messiah. So Yeah. Now, obviously, within this conversation, you, you can't help but bring up the one that came up in 2021. We, I think we've done a good job of not really getting into it because, you know, just want to appreciate this movie for what it is. But, I mean, this is done. There's not going to be a follow-up to the 1984 84 film. But when you look at the, the, um, the new version, there's obviously a part two coming from this book. What do you see? Do you think, is there any scenario where you think, you get follow-up Dune adaptations, like like sequels. Do you see a scenario where this is something that you could have as a franchise? Because the reason why I really ask is I enjoy this movie, and I enjoy Dune Part 1, and I love that they're going to do a Dune Part 2, but I'm really on the fence as to whether or not this is something that could be made into a franchise in the sense that not that it's not accessible where people like want to just, you know, watch people on a, a strange planet and ride, you know, fucking space worms and, and things like that. I mean, that in itself is kind of cool, but what, I mean, we, as we saw with game of Thrones, you can watch, you know, just uh Family Wars lasts on for eight seasons and and be successful <laughs> when you have got ten thousand characters. It still works, but this is yeah. something that I that I that I'm fighting with is this sci-fi epic opus that everybody knows of. Is this something that you could do a franchise for? I think you probably. You probably could, but I don't think that anybody has the stomach for it because mm-hmm. you would have there's a lot of weird and especially in the last two books, like some of the sexual stuff is like fucking nuts. Like there's no way mm. you'd have to. I don't know if like, but I guess you could do you could do other methods like you yeah. could adapt it. Um, But yeah, there's some crazy sexual like <laughs> uh, basically sexual assault that occurs. If you know, not in that context, we'll have yeah. to, we can talk yeah. like offline about that. Um, yeah. And you know, it, it's interesting about that because like, obviously there's uh, at least implied sexual assault happening in, in this film from like 1984. And then obviously, um, you know, the kind of the, the issues of homoeroticism going on in this movie and the Baron is a twink. Pardon me. The Baron kills a twink. The Baron kills a, kills a twink. 
Um, but then he, but then he gets cockboard. So I think like that's the circle when he goes and gets eaten by the worm. That's the cockboard. So <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of things going on. And I did read something, one of the critiques about this, and not that I necessarily want to go down that rabbit hole because I, I, I try to not get super super serious on on this show but this movie did come out in 84 and this was at the uh early stages of the you know of the uh aids um you know pandemic or epidemic a uh, pandemic um and there there were a lot of criticism about the baron uh who obviously has some you know homoerotic like tendencies and we see somebody in a position of power and you see him disfigured and, and having lesions on his face, which is something that, you know, we know of, you know, the, the, the AIDS oh, right, virus. Right, right. Yeah. And, and what, what that meant, you know, so one of like the crit- uh, critiques is just another way of painting homosexuals in a negative light. And, right. Not to say, like I said, it's not that I'm trying to bring this in, have this as a conversation, but, you know, through the lens of looking back that maybe there is an element of truth to that statement that it is something that we should look at and we should recognize of just how maybe uh, our imitating reality or even within the conversation that while it might not have been intentional, right, there is elements that that could make people a little squeamish in that respect. And I just felt like uh, we should at least bring attention to it. In some right. Capacity. No, I, I totally agree. And I would say that one of Frank Herbert's sons was gay and they had a bad relationship. And I don't, I think Frank Herbert was very likely homophobic. You know, the book originally was written in like, what? Well, I'm trying to think when it came out, like 1965. Mm, that sounds right from my notes. The book yeah, was published, remember, yeah, from the 60s. Yeah, 65. So, you know, Herbert, a white male, I think he even, you know, he was like a Republican guy. He was like a libertarian kind of guy, you mm. know. So um, I think a lot of that comes from the book from Herbert and not so much Lynch. And I think Lynch adapting it in that way, like you said, though, you know, you can absolutely like you can you can come to that reading very easily. And I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily I think it is kind of fucked up for the bear like the baron doesn't need to be gay or and be evil and like you know what i mean like that's right. kind of a cheap um so i think that falls upon herbert who is yeah he's kind of a little bit of a reactionary streak through his through his life you know mm-hmm. i mean even the books the books are kind of like kind of hardcore on this very nietzschean nietzschean sort of like i was talking about with the crazy focus on um like evolution and and te- the testing of humanity and humanity right. must be tested and we can't get complacent and we can't get that's why like the butlerian jihad was so bad because it m- m- people stopped thinking for themselves and started thinking and resembling like machines and so that is the kind of element that herbert's like no you have to be test yourself and like challenge yourself and put yourself in hard positions that's the only way we grow even leto references here with like the sleeper must awaken like that's what that's all about is you know we're we're 
on Caladan. We've got this beautiful planet. We're comfortable. We're all, you know, uh, it's like the the Waltons over here. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta go. We're gonna go to Arrakis and we're gonna fucking test ourselves. Uh, you know, the sleeper has to awaken. So get ready because shit's about to hit the fan, bro. <laughs> yeah, father, the sleeper has awakened. Um, all right, Cooper, you ready for a pop quiz? I'm ready. All right, here Hopefully. we go. I got five questions for you. First one, four parts. No. Um, <laughs> so question number one, name the four main planets referenced in Dune 1984. So it'd be Gidi Prime, Caladan, mm -hmm. Kaitane, and Arrakis. Perfect. Finish this line for me. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer, the little death. <laughs> and then I've been trying to teach myself this. It's something like, uh, I must permit my fear to pass through me. And something, something, and fear will be the only thing left, or I will be the only thing left. The end. Mm -hmm. But I definitely remember the first two lines. <laughs> right. Um, what is the meaning of Maudib? Maudib is the nickname given to the mouth shadow on the second moon according to this film all right perfect so we have referenced sting and sting is a a musician what band was sting in the police the police all right final question so okay so we know that toto did the music for this film and everybody knows that toto did the song africa right like the famous famous song africa even if you don't know it. I love it, that song. Everybody I love that loves song. that song. It's a fucking iconic song. Even Weezer if you don't just know the song by name, you know the song Africa. If somebody just right. says, yeah. you know, uh, any lyric from that, you're like, oh, I know that fucking song. It's, it's incredible. Here's the question for you. Name any other song by Toto. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I honestly cannot name another. If so, it's not on the soundtrack to this I I put this in there because I'm like, I don't know any other fucking songs by uh, by Toto. And this is where it'd be great if I had like the ability to if I was really good other than just putting my phone up to the, the speaker, because if I had like a like a means just click on the link. But if I were to say the song Hold the Line and hit like you would know the song Hold the Line with the first like riff of the song. Yeah, I'm looking at their. I'm a, I'm on my title checking out their like popular songs, and it's number two on there. And I'm not. I'm definitely not doubting you. Especially from this era, this would be stuff. Oh, yeah. Love Just, isn't always on time. Love isn't always on time. Exactly. Hold the line. Um, just you. You hear that opening piano riff, and you're like, oh. I totally know that song. Uh, another song that everybody knows is a song called Rosanna. Uh, I probably heard it, but just like, you know, randomly. There you go. Just a couple other, couple other songs by Toto, but I was surprised to know that I had heard at least three other songs other than <laughs> Africa. All right, Cooper, that, my friend, is it. I want to allow you the opportunity if there's anything that you feel that we've that we've overlooked, glossed over, just or just forgotten entirely. Of course, um, offline, 
Um, I'm going to have a pretty extensive kind of like intro. I'll be talking for about five, six minutes of just kind of, hey, you're going to hear some some terms that we discuss. That's what this means. I, I discussed the plot. I'm going to reference your podcast, et cetera, and everything like that. But um, going back to the question, is there anything that that um, that you think that we miss that we're like, shit, we can't complete a Dune <laughs> podcast without at least mentioning all my fucking epic toys, uh, whatever that is <laughs> behind your head right now. Uh, oh, you got to see, I, I have a fucking Chris knife. Let me go get it. <laughs> Yeah, please. So yeah, check this out. This is made, this is resin, but it's made from the mold of the actual prop Chris knife from the film. That's awesome, dude. My roommate got this for me and it's, I love it. It's so awesome. Um, how long have you had that? Uh, maybe like maybe a Christmas present or birthday present. So like, that's cool. That's really cool. Five or six months, something like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, we didn't mention Jose Ferrer. Um, we didn't. As, we didn't mention like the Max Emperor. Van Sydow either. Oh right, yeah. Gosh, like there's Van Sydow was great too. Yeah, when he gives that line about bless the maker and his passing, mm-hmm. which is another line I absolutely love. Uh, Dean Stockwell. I mean, there. Dean Stockwell. Oh, gosh, ton, <laughs> ton of people in this movie, and yeah, I mean, it's just. It, it, it's it's tough because of the fact this movie literally has dozens upon dozens of characters yeah. in this and they were all anybody that was important uh at that at that time i mean they're they make little appearances in this and we we mentioned um lois einhorn aka ray finkel but sean young um was in this the i forgot the name of the actress that plays lady jessica but i remember you francesca francesca annis that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my first, my first sexual feelings for him. <laughs> uh, we said Brad Dorif, who was perfectly Brad Dorif. Oh gosh, he was um, amazing. He was so good. Yeah, I think we we've, we've gotten the the, and I, yeah, we did say Richard Jordan. Um, but yeah, just really, really iconic cast. And um, oh, oh, one final thing, just because you had said his name twice in the very beginning. And I'm going to have to hang up here in just a second because I'm running down um, under 10%. But you had mentioned something at the beginning. You had mentioned Alan Smithy. Do you know what Alan Smithy or who Alan Smithy is or what Alan Smithy means? I know what it means in film. I forget what the origin of the term was. But it's whenever a director doesn't want their name involved with the project, they will give the credit to Alan Smithy. And so it's like an industry inside term there's other movies i couldn't name another one but there's probably a bunch yeah bunch countless uh films where basically the director or somebody really doesn't want any credit for the movie and really wants their name not associated or uh, disassociated with it they'll use the that pseudonym alan smithy so alan smithy doesn't exist so for the listeners if you ever see alan smithy in a credit that's not a real person and if you're always wondering why does Alan Smithy only do shit, it's because of the fact he's the that most Alan prolific Smithy, director ever. <laughs> <laughs> he's the worst director ever. Uh, he did like Hellraiser Bloodline. Uh, he did a couple other really shitty films, but yeah, he doesn't exist. He's not a real person. But Cooper, uh, this was so much fun. Thank you for coming out. 
Again, this is my 100th episode. I had you for episode one. And the fact that I even do this show is because... I know, right? Yeah, exactly. ...is because of you, you know? So uh, we we go back, and I, I'm super happy for the success that you've had on your show. And I will always owe you uh, a debt of appreciation uh, for introducing me to this world. And as always, you always have an open... As always, you always have an open invitation to come and uh, uh, talk some uh, talk some films, whether they're a good movie like this one or Cable Guy <laughs> or a bad movie so, like right? this one or Cable Guy. They're both good and bad in different ways. So right. uh, this was a, an absolute treat. So I appreciate you, buddy. Yeah, I mean, definitely right back at you. I'm glad you're doing this. I hope it you know gives you the same kind of satisfaction and like vibe that I get from from doing our podcast. I mean, I feel like we need another, we, our runtime is just not long enough to really even, we barely scratched the surface of the, That's true. That's of the true. movie, you know? Which is fitting but, uh, because the movie barely scratched the surface yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. So I, I guess the last thing, on I, brand. the last thing I could say is just, uh, you know, bring in Fade and Raban. <laughs> um, I'm going to put in, uh, I mean, this is going to be loaded with show notes of just different, different things, just to even include a little, because you introduced me to uh, just all the like the shit posting uh, for that stuff as well. So I, even when I like, I was seeing it without even recognizing, like, man, people fucking love Dune. Uh, this is this is the this Facebook is- groups. Honestly, the Facebook meme groups for stuff are like better than Twitter. They're better than Reddit. Like the Dune group is like there's always funny shit. I'm like kind of surprised that people are that yeah. good on Facebook. But yeah. Awesome. All right. Cooper Cherry, everybody. Thank you again to Cooper. That was a lot of fun. Hopefully you had as much fun listening to it as Cooper and I had actually having the conversation. So that's all I've got. Again, thank you to all of you that that helped propel this little podcast of ours. We will be back in a week for another episode, episode 101. Although I probably won't really refer to in many more numbers until we get another like little fun plateau, like I don't know, like episode 150 or 200. And like Cooper show shit, I mean, I think they're approaching like 300 episodes. So we've got a long way to go. But as long as you are leaving reviews and telling your friends and we're gaining subscribers, then you never know. It, uh, we, we might just be uh, uh, on, the, on the cusp of something amazing. So until next time, thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Another episode of Stanford Cinema.